0: House of Mystery presents Inside Writing, the radio show where authors discuss their writing process in all genres.
1: A captain of uh, the uh, Douglas County Sheriff's Police Department, I believe, in Omaha, and uh, he's written some books. He's got a new one coming out in June. Um, so let's get him started. It's uh, Dean T. Olson. How are you doing, Dean?
0: I'm doing fine. Thanks for having me on.
1: Oh, it's a pleasure. So, Dean, uh, first time on the show. So let's tell the audience who you are. Like uh, I kind of have a briefing, but uh, let's let's go into a little bit more. So uh, you had thirty years on the uh, police department.
0: Yeah, it's actually the Sheriff's Department here in Omaha. I started in uh, 1978, uh, retired in 2008, 30 years of uh, a service with the department, and uh, retired as a captain in charge of the Criminal Investigation Bureau.
1: Wow. Um, what can I say? That's, that's great. Um, how did you get into um, writing books? Because I know that this Evil Desire, which is the one that comes out in June, is not your first book. Um, what led you to, to getting into writing?
0: I wrote uh, some articles off and on during my career, and you uh, just kind of always had an interest in writing. And uh, when I retired, I had more time to pursue that, because when I was still working, obviously, I was quite busy with my career. But after retirement, I had more time and uh, wrote a couple of books and had them published. And and then I, I decided that uh, I wanted to write about some of the sex crimes that I investigated, because I didn't see a lot of books out there uh, specifically written by investigators who had actually worked the cases there are a lot of books out there on homicides because obviously they generate a lot of attention but the uh, the ones on actual rape cases that are written by detectives that work the cases seem to be kind of uh, hit or miss hard to find so I decided to write about some of the cases I had worked
1: That's, uh, so why do you think that is why has there been such a lack of of writing in this department
0: you know, I'm not sure. I, I think primarily because homicides generate a lot more uh, tension and fear, and uh, they're a lot more titillating to, to readers to read about murder because it is such a, a heinous crime. Uh, but I think on sex assaults, uh, maybe it falls through the cracks because it's not as it doesn't rise to the level of homicide in many cases.
1: I guess um, now a lot of the crimes how is, in the sex crimes, are a lot of them solved? Or is there a high percentage that actually don't get solved?
0: Unlike murder, where you're you're stuck with a body, uh, it's hard to get rid of a body. Uh, sex assaults, many of them go unreported. So unfortunately for the criminal justice system, and even worse so for the victims, uh, most rape crimes are not solved.
1: Wow. Um, how does that work for us as an investigator? So when you're doing sex crimes, um it's a real uphill battle then for you
0: well it can be but uh, a lot of the rape cases don't get reported in the first place because of the stigma attached to rape so they don't even come to the attention of law enforcement and uh, many victims suffer in silence and uh, rapists are free to continue to uh, you know assault victims because they're unknown to the police. And so every time you have a, a victim that comes forward, it's a, it's almost a blessing in disguise because you get a chance then to get the information from them, get their assistance, and they're brave enough to come forward so you can work the case and try to identify this guy and get him off the street.
1: Yeah, it's pretty it's – pretty, um, that, that must be a really hard part of policing. Um, so some of the cases, I guess you see some pretty wild – some pretty brutal cases, what are some of the most, I don't know, I don't want to say awesome, but the most ones that, the ones that really stick out or stay with you?
0: A lot of them stay with you because they're, you deal with uh, human uh, emotions and things like that, but probably one of the worst that I worked was the uh, case I write about in the book called The uh, Babysitter Killers.
1: No. Um and so so actually it, it, wow. Uh, so that was actually a, a series of babysitters
0: or No, it was one babysitter, uh, one night, uh, two juveniles. Uh, actually one was 18 so he's considered an adult in the eyes of the court. But his accomplice was a 16-year-old and they broke into a house where they knew that a young girl was babysitting, beat her, raped her, tortured her, uh, murdered her while a uh, six-year-old child slept in a bedroom next door.
1: What, what what do you think makes someone do that? I mean, that's that's a huge question. I know, but like, um, I, I just I just try to wrap my head around that in the sense of uh, actually plotting it out and and, and getting some young sixteen-year-old and doing all this. Like, I, what's wrong with that person?
0: Well, I think in this case, in uh, fact, I described some of the dysfunction in the family. His uh, dad was a uh, sex offender who was in prison in another state at the time. His uh, brother, older brother, I believe, was uh, arrested a number of years after the murder for uh, an unrelated sexual assault. So obviously, the kid comes from a dysfunctional family, an antisocial family. But I think it's just pure, and, uh, pure and simple. It's evil, I and mean, it's. Uh, unfortunately it it involves uh, or it envelops people that aren't uh, innocent people and, and they pay a heck of a price for it mm.
1: so what do you hope people get out of the out of the
0: book? Well, probably a better understanding on how these crimes are committed, uh, the nature and type of people that commit the crimes, uh, the suspects involved, uh, what their motivations are, and hopefully a better understanding of the crime of rape so that they can maybe look with a, a little more educated uh, uh eye at how these crimes occur and why and uh you know a lot of times if uh, i write in the book about the fact that one of the last cases i worked before retirement was a case where prostitutes were involved and uh, it was kind of an unfortunate case because prostitutes in many ways are considered disposable victims they don't have a lot of status in society and uh, a lot of police officers uh look on them as uh not being you can't rape a prostitute because they sell their bodies for money and unfortunately in this case uh, the rapist his name was henry Camphouse. Uh, he raped at least eight women eight prostitutes uh, one that was not a prostitute and uh, when it came time to uh, to go to trial the prosecutor decided that because the victims in many cases were prostitutes they couldn't be located and. They weren't probably as reliable a witness as other victims are. He decided you know, to uh, plea bargain. Yeah. Go ahead.
1: I was going to say, we've had a we had a lot of uh, uh, this type of crime, like, you know, in the new Bedford killer and different serial killers and, and prostitutes and um, people on the street as well, poor people, and drug addicts, and even uh, a lot of times in the gay community. Uh, so it seems to be kind of a a choice for a lot of these uh, killers and and attackers, rapers and stuff. Um, A lot of times when we talk on that side, they say that the um, policing doesn't care as much about them and don't spend as much time or um, effort on cases when you have, uh, you know, street people, prostitutes, stuff like that. Um, But you being in on the other side, being the policing, how do you address that? How do you, how do you find that to be?
0: Well, I look upon him as a victim rather than uh, their status as a prostitute or any other uh, choice they make in life. And, um, you know, one of the problems with uh, not investigating rapes of prostitutes is that the uh, perpetrators in these cases often attack women who aren't prostitutes. So, you know, you run the risk of you ignore the rape of a prostitute, but then you turn around and you've got a guy that will attack, uh, you know, an innocent victim who's who's not a um, a prostitute, maybe a woman who's in the wrong part of town. Or, you know, one case I describe in the book, a woman who was a, a chronic drug user. And these guys are predators. They know how to spot these people. They know how to target them. And so she was simply walking home after a party Using a lot of drugs, and uh, he drove up on her. She wasn't a prostitute, and uh, attacked her. So, you know, it's kind of short-sighted on a, on a number of levels, including the fact that they don't always confine themselves to raping prostitutes.
1: Yeah, I, I, like I said, it must be a really, real, real hard and real challenging uh, to deal with that. Now, and as police, um, how many cases do do average detectives get at a time? Like, are you guys overwhelmed?
0: Uh, a lot of times we're stretched thin. It's uh, it's kind of an axiom in in the business that if you're not overworked, you're not uh, you're not doing your job. But um, you know the cases vary depending on the jurisdiction and, and things like that. But um, most of the time, I recall from my days as a as an investigator, as a detective, uh, I was stretched pretty thin. I was running from case to case and uh, trying to make cases and. You know, and then you have the components uh, that go with the investigation. An important one is testifying in court, and so that ties you up because you can't then be out on the street trying to identify these people. But, yeah, I would say that uh, probably you ask any detective and they're going to tell you that they're they're working really hard and overstretched.
1: Is there anything you would want to see changed in the uh, policing area as far as detectives and things like that on these cases?
0: Well, they just had, a, and I'm not going to identify the agency, but they had an incident in Michigan uh, recently where they, uh, they found that the officers, the social the attitude of the officers towards uh, some of the victims was that they they didn't tell their stories convincingly, so therefore they, they weren't going to actively investigate the rape. And in the process, they had amassed a... Uh, staggering number of rape kits that they didn't send through for processing simply because they had this preconceived notion about how a rape victim should react and respond and so ultimately they ended up with a uh, i think it was ten thousand or more rape kits that had never been processed they had a new prosecutor come in uh he or she i don't remember which which one it was but they looked at the number of backlogged rape cases and said you know we got to do something with these rape kits and so they started rushing them through under federal grants to get them into the CODIS system, which is a federal database that uh, stores DNA profiles. And in the process, they found out that they had identified um, the ones they had processed so far, which wasn't all of them, they had identified 39 serial rapists, responsible for crimes up to including rape and murder in 39 states and so the dangers of not uh, following through on these rape investigations and and basically doing your job was that you have a lot of other victims out there that didn't need to be victimized because the guy would have been taken off the street in the first place
1: Mm. yeah it's it's um you know i have to i have to mention you you have written a couple books before yes i did and now they seem to be more examining like the perfect enemy. So that's law enforcement for Islamic terrorists. Um, wow, that's a that's a complete opposite of uh, of what you're doing now. What, what was that about?
0: Well, when I uh, earned a second uh, master's degree from the uh, Center for Homeland Defense and Security at the uh, Naval Postgraduate School in Monterey. And I wanted to use that uh, knowledge that I gained in working on that degree to uh, acquaint cops with the information regarding Islamist terrorism because I felt that there was not a lot of that information out there, and some of the stuff that was out there was was bad or incorrect information. So that was the first book I wrote. And then I followed that up with a second book on terrorism. and uh, But this, this uh, most recent book, Evil Desire, I wanted to get into more, an autobiographical uh, view of some of the cases I worked, and in the process uh, probably address some of the misconceptions about rape and uh, and basically talk about what I consider to be some of the most interesting cases I ever worked.
1: What do you think the, the biggest misconception is about rape?
0: I don't know if there's one particular misconception. I think there's a, a handful of misconceptions, and one of them is, and it's pretty prevalent because you even see judges to this day that uh, – and there was one in uh, Canada that you know basically said that a, a rape victim must not have been resisting hard enough if she allowed the rape to occur because she could have kept her legs together or something some ridiculous notion like that. And so you in the most recent case, I, I didn't study it uh, closely, but a, a Baylor University student was basically uh, acquitted of crimes because the judge didn't believe that the victim was serious enough or resisted enough or, whatever one of these myths about rape affected his judgment. And so you have these pervasive myths about what the crime is, what it involves, and the victim's role in it. And, um, you know, it's unfortunate because it it does affect sentencing. It affects uh, prosecutors. They, you know, may feel that, uh, well, you know, yeah, this is a crime, but maybe it's not all the, the perpetrator's fault. Maybe the victim placed herself in a position where she got raped in the first place. And so there's a lot of blame that gets shifted onto a victim, which isn't fair and it's it's unjust and it leads to bad decisions in the uh, criminal justice uh, process.
1: Where do you think all that opinion comes from? Like why, like, why do you think people feel that way?
0: You know, I don't know. I, I've never really thought about it, but it's probably societal attitudes towards uh, men and, uh, you know, their role in courting and things like that. I remember one time one of the... Uh, schools or training sessions i attended the the guy was a legendary fbi profiler his name was lee hazelwood and he had made a comment something to the effect that uh you know crime is a basically an overly aggressive uh, courtship and he said it's not he said it's an act of sexual violence and if people still harbor those uh, misconceptions then you know they they make up juries they uh become judges, prosecutors, things like that. If they harbor those misconceptions, then these things will occur.
1: I guess quite often the uh, rape is really about power and control, isn't it?
0: Uh, All the time it's about power and control, and in some cases there are four basic types of rapists. Uh, One in particular, the anger excitation rapist, Uh, it's about humiliation in addition to the power and the control. So uh, you end up with a, a suspect who does everything he can to uh, uh, humiliate, dominate, control, and uh, manipulate his victim for his uh, evil desire. Hmm. How,
1: how, do you, how do you feel this has affected your own life, your personal life in that sense? Like when you go through all these cases and you spent all this time um, in policing, you know, 30 years, um, and seeing people in such a violent manner? such a bad manner um this must this must have an effect on you as well
0: it does uh, off and on but i think it, over the years you know you learn how to deal with it and uh, uh one of the guys who mentored me in my career had mentioned a comment or made the comment he described it as functional stoicism you learn how to detach your emotions from what you're seeing the horrors that you're seeing and the, the tremendous suffering and violence that you can do your job so he said well other people have the luxury of." Uh, you know, breaking down and, and being overcome by emotions, you have a job to do. And so that functional stoicism kind of steps in and you, you learn how to deal with it by maybe putting it in on the back burner until you're done and then you can deal with it in private.
1: Mm. I guess you must see some really weird cases too in, in, in sex crimes, like some real off the beaten path, things you don't expect.
0: Yeah, you know, what's funny about the, the sex crimes uh, investigation position is that you deal with... Uh, Uh, exposers people that uh, you know men that uh, flash women in apartment complexes or wherever and uh, one of the things i found and when you start peeling back the layers of the onion to investigate a case like that is that there are whole groups or societies out there that uh, have a lot of members they meet on a regular basis and uh, you find out that there are a lot more of these people out there They, they may not commit crimes but they have these compulsions and one guy in particular I had, he was an uh, exposer, and his M.O. was he would drive up to a uh, late-night taco joint or like a Taco Bell or someplace like that, and he would have his pants down around his knees. He'd pull through the drive through so that most of the time he knew it was probably going to be a young girl working there, and then he would expose himself. And when I tracked him down because she was smart enough to get his license number, he had used a friend's car. Took a little digging, but I found out who he was and uh, when i asked him about it he said well uh, i had a i just come from softball practice earlier in the day and i had a i had a rash and i was trying to you know let the lotion settle in and stuff so they've got a lot of really bs excuses and stuff i told the gal you know when i interviewed her i said you know you had a hot cup of coffee in your hands why don't you throw it in his lap i probably would have solved the problem for a while but you know obviously she was she was very frightened and uh, put off by it because he was he kept trying to see if she was looking at him and you know of course she's trying to get him out of the the, uh, way from the window because she was scared to death but um, you know it sounds kind of humorous at times but it's also telling that a lot of these guys will go on to do more than just expose themselves a lot of times it's a fantasy thing that leads up to them part of the fantasy is they expose themselves and then they they go on to have sex with the victim so it can actually lead to rape but one of the cases i worked uh, was a guy that was he would hang around jogging trails and he'd see women jogging and then by themselves he would jump out uh, from the parking spot near the jogging trail and expose himself and uh, he'd take his license plates off so it took a little tracking down in that case to find him but uh, one of the things I did was I, I found out there was a meeting for these people and I can't even remember what the name of the group was but uh, they would meet at a local restaurant uh, one night a week and discuss their cases sometimes they were court ordered to uh, meet and i drove through the parking lot and i looked for cars that matched the description of the one the victims had given me and sure as heck there sits this car and it was a fairly distinctive older model toyota got the license number and tracked him down through his registration and he freely admitted it he said i I can't control myself and uh yeah so a lot of that's out there just it's kind of a subculture that people don't know about because they're not exposed to it
1: Hmm. you know it's, it's, pretty, it's pretty interesting you know th- we hear a lot about this and, and we also hear a lot of times people think that um, well they think that um, there's an issue um, with doing something like that lady in the drive-thru if she poured coffee on them and, and hurt him, burned them or if you attack your attacker you could actually uh, be charged and, uh, and uh, be in trouble for doing that
0: yeah and I think it's probably not wise to uh handle it yourself that way. I know that, you know, it's, it sounds kind of humorous to talk about uh, a girl working at a fast food drive through throwing a hot cup of coffee on an exposer's lap, but uh, but again the prudent thing is to Call the professionals. Call 911. Have the police come out. Do re- take a report and uh, have an investigator follow up on it. You never know. Sometimes these people are capable of very high levels of violence, and so you might precipitate it. And obviously, if you're in a drive-through, you've got some protection because you're inside a building. You've got other workers around, but especially a woman who confronts somebody on a jogging path. You know, it's her, the guy, and uh, nobody else around. It's dangerous.
1: Hmm. Yeah, it's such a it's such a crazy thing, and and crime and and the whole thing. Uh, is there particular areas or things that people do that they could, uh, uh, you know, stay away from? Is there is there areas that people like predators look for?
0: Uh, predators are, are are interesting because they're very much like uh, animal predators. They they know how to focus on people who uh walk a particular way that it indicates that they may not be paying attention to their surroundings or they may not be physically uh capable of escaping if they try to move on that type of thing and they actually did some psychological studies uh, one of the research was a guy named grayson i can't remember his partner but they went to a, a penitentiary and they showed uh, muggers who were in the pen they said uh, showed them videotapes of uh, people walking down the street and they said uh look at these people and tell us which ones you would attack and then tell us why. And they, they looked at the way they walked and, you know, the way they carried themselves, if they had their heads down or they were alert and looking around. And almost unanimously, the predators came back and they said the people that walked because they indicated maybe they had a limp or, you know, were not uh, physically fit, uh, you know, they walked, uh, they weren't aware of their surroundings. They would attack them because they knew it would be relatively easy to uh, take their purse or mug, their, mug them by taking their wallet or whatever. So the same type of predatory uh, skills that an animal uses to pick out the weak, uh, the same thing a human predator use to target victims.
1: Uh, what, how are the stats on, on rate now? Are, are they going up, going down? Like what's, what kind of uh, crime rates going on there?
0: Well, it used to be that I think the numbers back in the 80s, uh, mid-80s, when I was uh, an active detective before I became a supervisor and administrator, was you had a rape was committed every four minutes. I think the numbers now are the rape occurs every minute in the United States. And that's, those are rapes that occur but may not be reported. So I don't know if the numbers are going up or down. I, I saw one site recently that said that the number of rapes had gone down slightly as a percentage of the population but that the the actual number was higher because the population had gotten bigger so of course you had the number of predators grew as well but um, 91 percent of uh, rape victims are female and of course what people don't realize the other uh, nine percent are male and a lot of people don't realize that males can be victims of rape also but it's interesting one of the the statistics i saw that kind of uh, brought home this uh the dangers of rape and how it, what an impact it has on society is that of every 1,000 rapes it is estimated that uh, 995 perpetrators will walk free they'll never be arrested or prosecuted for the crime
1: so so uh, and and male rape so that's primarily from other males or is that from females
0: uh, sometimes as females. We had uh, some of the cases are, are considered w- uh, what are classified as statutory rapes where you have a, an older woman, for example, will cultivate uh, uh, teenage boys. And, uh, you know, in the past that might not have been looked upon as rape, uh, maybe viewed as a rite of passage that uh, a 13-, 14-, 15-year-old boy was having sex with a 25-, a 35-year-old woman. But now we understand that, you know, rape is not a crime of... Uh, of sex it's a crime of violence it's a way to to dominate and have power and control over a person and so they realized that uh, these are not rites of passage these are actual sexual assaults in the same manner as a male raping a woman but they called them statutory rapes because the the victims were statutorily under the age of consent even though uh, you know in the olden days you'd look at that it's, oh, it's a lucky kid you know he's 16 years old he's having sex with a 30 year old woman well, those uh, those myths are pretty much being exploded now because uh, you realize the long term consequences those types of crimes have on the victims. And you know, one thing that really troubles me, and I have no idea why it's occurring, are the number of teachers now that are
1: seem that to be my getting next caught up. Question.
0: <laughs> yeah, I have no idea what's going on there. I haven't worked those cases in years, but just a lot of teachers, male and female, having sex with uh, underage kids or students and former students. Uh, it's really a troubling situation
1: yeah i i I find that really um surprising i know in seattle we've had a few it seems to be pretty pretty regular in times like you you hear it a couple of times a year um I, i i don't quite quite get it i don't quite get what they see in it and myself but you know
0: well what i don't understand is you know are we seeing it more because people are reporting it more often is that what's going on or is there actually a a an actual number an increase in the number of people that are doing this because it used to be the teachers were well respected and they still are in many cases but you know you would never consider a teacher as a predator and have to worry about uh, your teacher or your child's teacher but it seems like anymore you know more and more of these cases crop up and like crop up and like you said you know it seems like every week or every month there's a couple of new cases and it's not just Seattle it's here in Omaha it seems like it's everywhere and it's just that to me, it's an unfortunate uh, situation because now you have, uh, if you're, if you consider teachers as a group of potential predators, what richer hunting ground can there be than a bunch of impressionable kids that are taught to kind of uh, obey you and listen to you and uh, look up to you and admire you? Uh, easy to groom people like that if you're uh, that type of predator.
1: Yeah, it's kind of crazy. I, I was I was gonna that that was kind of my question. There was going to be about the teachers and uh, where they're going and, and why there's so many. It seems I, I guess it could just be more access to to uh, people reporting it and having cell phones and all that sort of stuff. Um, you know, it's funny. I, I I don't know. I think that there's a lot of um, it's not, I don't know, it's not considered as much a crime when a woman does that with a young boy and a student as it is the other way around?
0: Well, I think you're right. And, again, I think that's part of the societal attitudes towards uh, that type of offense. And, uh, you know, those things need to change, uh, irregardless of the gender of the perpetrator and whether or not the victim is a boy or a girl or a young man or a young woman. Uh, you know that type of crime is still a crime, and it shouldn't matter either way whether you know the victim is a uh, a young boy or girl, or the perpetrator is a male or a female.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. It shouldn't matter, but I don't know. It's just something about it. I mean, and look at Mary Kay Letourneau, and they've made a movie about it and the whole thing, right? And,
0: oh yeah. yeah. What's interesting is the the impact these crimes have on the victims. You know, they're they're much higher rates of uh, post-traumatic stress syndrome and uh, disorder pstd and uh, suicide rates uh, drug use Uh, i remember years ago i had a, a young victim came in a woman she was probably in her early 20s and wanted to talk to an investigator so i sat down with her and she had talked about how she had been raped about six or seven years earlier when she was a teenager she was out past her curfew was trying to sneak back home to avoid getting in trouble with her parents and she took a shortcut on a jogging path and some guy had walked past her. As soon as he got behind her, he turned around and blitzed her from behind, knocked her down and dragged her into the, the bushes there and uh, raped her with a knife. And uh, She had never reported it and I asked her why she was reporting it now and she said her life had become unmanageable. So even six years afterwards, you know, there was probably no way of finding the perpetrator. She wanted to, she had gone to her employee assistance program at work, and they said you need to tell the police about this as part of the healing process.
1: Yeah, yeah. Now, uh, what, what about the, um, have you dealt with some of the fake rape charges, like where someone says that they were attacked or uh, raped somewhere at a, you know, at a party or a bar or someone's house and, uh, and it turns out to, to be not real.
0: Yeah, it's a problem because you, you end up investing a lot of time and resources into a fake uh, report. And uh, when it's, especially you know, if they give you the name of a perpetrator and you track that person down, but they're usually pretty easy to spot. I remember one case in particular, we had a chronic uh, false reporter. She would report a false rape about every six or eight months. Finally, the last one she had reported. Uh, I drove her out to the scene where she said it had happened, and it was tall grass off of a uh, park, a little walking path in a park. And I said, well, tell me, show me exactly where he grabbed you and dragged you into the brush here so I can see where it happened. Maybe he left some evidence, that type of thing. She's real hesitant, and her story didn't make sense. She changed it a number of times. and Finally, she took me to this one spot, and she walked in a little ways. Well, you could tell just from her footprints in that fresh, Brush that nobody had been in there before and yet she claimed that she had wrestled around with a guy trying to resist his uh, attack and you know there was obvious that the grass, well, grass was not crushed down and stuff and it hadn't occurred there and finally when I confronted her with that fact and she broke down and told me that well she was making it up and and that wasn't able to identify or get a, a reason from her why she made these false reports but they they're they're not real common I think the national average is about 10 percent but uh, they do such damage because they waste so much time, and most of the time, detectives are pretty busy and don't have a lot of time to spend investigating a fake case. So, you know, if you can head those off at the pass, and a lot of times you can because the victims' the stories don't make sense, and, uh, you know, you can usually weed them out. But, again, you have to err on the side of caution and investigate it because it might be true.
1: Yeah, yeah. And, and you know, and it, it, costs, it costs a lot of money. Do those people get charged then for, for costing so much time and money?
0: They can, but my experience has been that the prosecutors don't want to take the case to trial. Uh, they get arrested for false reporting, and, uh, you know, because it is such a, a waste of a drain on resources. But a lot of times, uh, you'll get a good defense attorney who'll say, Well, I'll get my client into mental health counseling. And they do, you know, they go into counseling and then they drop the charges and stuff. And, you know, and, and nobody wants to see somebody with a, a mental illness that uh, their demons cause them to make fake uh, rape reports go to jail but by the same token it's a really big drain on resources when you have to spend time tracking down things that uh, don't make sense because the story's phony
1: uh, Do you get a lot of um, old crime reports too? you know like how you know we've seen Bill Cosby and things in the news and how people come up years later and say well this happened you know and and is it is that a common occurrence
0: it's not a common occurrence. Uh, it's more common in homicides. They're called cold cases. Uh, in uh, Nebraska, I think they've changed the law recently, but it used to have a three-year statute of limitations that if a felony uh, crime like sexual assault was not solved within three years, you couldn't prosecute a, a perpetrator if you found him anyway. But uh, I think in some cases they've changed those because they recognize the fact that victims may not come forward for a number of years uh, past the statute of limitations so they they may have lengthened it i'm not uh, since i've been retired 10 years i don't keep track of that stuff anymore but yeah the cases like uh like cosby are kind of troubling because it it looks like he was a predator and again i don't have all the facts and i'm not here to pass judgment on the guy but it looks like he was a serial predator uh for a long long time and uh you know, you get that many cases, that many women coming forward. It's pretty hard to refute that, saying, "Well, you know, it's just a he said, she said, difference of opinion." But uh, yeah, I, I've seen them. I, I don't. I've never worked one myself because they weren't real. Uh, they, they had never occurred, as far as I know, in, in my experience.
1: Well, this is a tricky question, but you know, we saw the um, recently the uh, justice, you know, Brett Kavanaugh and all that, and that that whole thing broadcast um now is it common for uh someone not to remember all of the details in a rape
0: it can be uh, you know there's there's uh different theories about what the victim can recall and uh whether or not uh, it's better to interview them immediately after the crime occurred to get fresh details or wait a while because maybe their their mental processes uh through uh trying to heal from a crime like that, that other information will bubble up, that type of thing. I remember when I used to interview victims, I would tell them, you know, you give me the information that you've got now and call me if you have more information. And I would tell them when you're sleeping at night, uh, keep a pad and paper and pencil near the bed because things that uh, may not bubble up to the surface uh, while you're awake sometimes do when you're sleeping. And if you don't write them down, you're not going to remember them when you wake up. And you know i've had victims call me and say hey look i remember something else i remember what he said or things like that that uh you know, they might have suppressed because of the nature i also found that you really you know when you talk to a victim they they seldom depending on the nature of the rape, they sell them give you everything because some things are just too intensely embarrassing or personal uh, so you got to be a little cautious on that but yeah i think it's fairly common or it could be a common uh, occurrence that they, they may not remember everything
1: mm. so you so, know is there such a thing as um marriage rape today
0: oh well, i think there always has been I, I think that in the past and again it's a societal attitude uh, it was considered uh, you know a man supposedly raping his wife it couldn't occur it wasn't a crime but yeah anytime somebody commits an act of sexual violence it's a crime whether regardless of the status of the victim and uh, hopefully that's changed a great deal now because I know in, in some cases in the past, you know, I've actually had cops, other cops I work with say, well, he can't rape her. That's his wife. Well, you know, I'm thinking to myself, doesn't she have the right to say no? I mean, how about if you're sitting someplace and uh, somebody wants to do that to you and you say no? I mean, don't you have a right to say no? And so, yeah, I think it's probably, uh, you know, the public information has come to light uh, probably in the last 20, 25 years has uh, destroyed much of that myth, but it probably still exists in a lot of quarters
1: yeah yeah it's funny how it's uh slowly progressed and how things are because i remember a lot of things in the 60s and 70s that would never happen now oh yeah and, you know it would never be accepted um and i guess with me too and all that stuff it's it's brought a lot of awareness to uh you know what goes on and stuff like that um and now quite often i guess these sex crimes do lead to murder don't they
0: yes they do in fact one well, the four categories of rapists: the anger, excitation rapist uh, often engages in lust murder, and uh, his uh, goal may be to start out as a, you know raping his victim over and over. But uh, the injuries that the victim sustains during those attacks leads to her death. But uh, so you've got one category rapist in particular who's extremely dangerous because their uh, desire to control another human being includes the control over whether or not they live, which is probably the ultimate form of control. And so, yes, it's very possible. In fact, I I used to tell some of the detectives working for me when I was training them that, you know, rape is a life-threatening crime. It may not lead to a death each and every time, but that victim straddles a precarious shifting line during that rape, and that victim or that perpetrator could easily kill her because she's under his control at that time.
1: Hmm. And, you know, one thing that I've, I've seen in the news, we, we see come through, and uh, there's been a few of them, actually. Um, it, it's kind of surprising how it happens, and I don't know if you've dealt with it, but people that have been uh, kidnapped or held hostage in a, uh, in a house, you know, or three or four girls, and, and the perpetrator um, keeps them there for years and, and rapes them until, until they're discovered and escaped. Um, that's kind of the same style of crime too, isn't it?
0: Yes, it is. In fact, that's probably a form of that anger, excitation, rapist, or lust murderer. He just doesn't rise to the level of murder because he's able to control his victim for a long period of time. The the one case that I did work, because those type of rapes are the the most uh, rare, Uh, the guy was kind of a uh, low-functioning individual, not very intelligent, and he was the one that was targeting uh, prostitutes. Uh, because he didn't have a lot of money and uh, probably wasn't the sharpest knife in a drawer, he would pick up a prostitute, take her to a remote location, and it happened to be a, a place where he used to mow lawns years before, so he was intimately familiar with the nooks and crannies, these areas where he could uh, get off the beaten path and rape the woman without being interrupted. And uh, But again, uh, the higher order, the higher functioning anger, excitation, rapist, uh, they can keep somebody bound and chained up for years and use them as a sex slave. Uh, but oftentimes they, uh, they tend to be increasers, which means that their level of violence goes up. And so as they increase the level of violence, of course, the danger to the victim increases also leading to their death. But they had one recently in South Carolina, I believe, I think the guy's name was uh Holkep, and he had lured a, uh, young girl to come out to his property to clean it. She showed up with her boyfriend. Um, He ended up killing him in front of the girl and then chained her up in a shipping container. And the police uh, got a missing person report. They were able to track her to her last known cell phone pings, and it was close to his property. Uh, When they opened up the shipping container, she was chained up like a dog. He would come in and rape her and then chain her back up again. So, you know, they're capable of uh, extreme violence. And in this case, uh, she probably would have killed her to dispose of her before he went on to his next victim.
1: Do you think the um, – this is a touchy one, but do you think justice system is, is working strong enough? Or is it – like with, a, with someone like that guy, um, what really happens to them? Do we just send them for treatment? Do they get a couple of years in jail? Or are they getting enough?
0: A lot of times they're getting enough. Uh, the problem is, you know, it's a revolving door because you're not going to – unless the guy has committed a, a murder, he's going to get out. And when he gets out, if he hasn't aged out where he's too old or infirm to commit these crimes, he's going to go back and commit the crimes. But in the case of, uh, of this uh, Henry Camp House here in Omaha, he was raping uh, disposable victims of prostitutes. And uh, when it came time for trial, I mentioned before that uh, you know, they were hard to find and they, they weren't real credible on the stand, so the prosecutor uh, decided he was going to accept the plea bargain. He went to prison for four years, I believe, and got out in four years. The problem was he went to prison for other than sex crimes, so he's not on the sex offender registry. It doesn't have to be monitored. He's probably going to go back out and start raping again, and, and now society has no information on him, at least if he'd been convicted of a sex crime and the prosecutor was aware of the fact that this guy was an anger-excitation rapist, the most dangerous kind, the most uh, resistant to... to uh, training and the behavior modification he would have insisted on the fact that he had been convicted of a sex crime so that he would be sex offender be on the sex offender monitor, monster system for the rest of his life so in this case uh, the guy's a serial rapist uh, he's out and uh, he served his time so he's no longer on parole or anything and he's free to commit his crimes again and is the wiser Hmm. Do do, do you
1: think the sex offender uh, list and registry uh, really works or is it real, uh, do people use it enough?
0: I think they do, but again, it's an imperfect system. The the key is that the sex offender registry, I I used to uh, manage that function, I had detectives working for me that made sure that they tracked these guys down. What it did was it was another tool in the toolkit and it stripped away the anonymity that uh, rapists and serial offenders hid behind. Uh, once they were identified and the community knew about it, uh, you know, people were aware that they had a serial sex offender, a high risk sex offender living in their neighborhood. They would keep their kids in. They would, you know, depending on who he targeted, if it was an adult, they would know they had a, a sex offender in their midst. And before the sex offender monitoring occurred, that never, never took place. Uh, one of the things, uh, that happened early on in my career was he had a a serial murderer in town and uh he had murdered two young boys uh they were both uh, one of them was snatched only several blocks from my house and uh his name was john jubert he was ultimately executed in the uh, nebraska electric chair but uh, we found out uh, working those cases was just a number of uh, predators that were out there that We had no information on We would knock on doors and they would say, hey, by the way, did you know this guy down here does this or this guy? You know, we never knew that. And the sex offender uh, registry works because it identifies these people. It doesn't identify everybody because, like in the case of Henry Campos, you have to be convicted of a sex offense to be uh, placed on that that system. But it does strip away the anonymity that they hid behind so in the process they could – target other victims by living next to a school, for example, or some place where they could surveil children if that was their uh, their MO. So, yeah, I think it works. It's a powerful tool, but it's not perfect.
1: Yeah, yeah. Wow. What an interesting, uh, it's an interesting subject and quite, uh, I imagine, quite stressful at times. Um, you know, I... Um, Let's let give about your contact information. So if someone wants to uh, pick up your book or if they want to contact you, maybe they have a story or something, how do they do sure.
0: that? The uh, book is at the Genius Book Publishing uh, website. Uh, it's supposed to be out uh, mid-year 2019. It might be out a little early uh, since I finished it early, but uh, geniusbookpublishing.com. Uh, if they want a description of it, they can click on the News tab and uh, scroll down a little bit, and it appears there, a little blurb about it appears there. I don't put out a lot of contact information. Uh, somebody once asked me, how come you're not on social media? Well, in 30 years, I put a lot of deserving people into prison, and I prefer to make it as hard as possible for them to come knocking on my door, so I, I don't have a lot of contact information out there. They can contact the publisher who will get information to me, and I'll be glad to return calls or emails and stuff, but I don't put my information out.
1: Okay, that sounds good. Well, we we're going to have that linked up to our site as well, and so uh, you know, listeners can just go right on and, and do a one click. And um, uh, you know, we should have you on again just before the book comes out. Give it another little uh, push. Let people know when it's coming out.
0: Be happy to do that.
1: Great. Well, uh, our guest has been uh, Dean T. Olson, and we've been talking about uh, his books. His newest one coming out, Evil Desire, and it's Reflections of a Sex Crime Detective. And that's um, coming out in June, but if it's sooner, we'll let everybody know. Thank you for being here, Dean.
0: Thank you very much. To find out more about our show, guests, or to listen to past shows from our archive,
1: please go to www.houseofmysteryradio.com. Show's over for now.
0: Was it as good for you as it was for me?